0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 98 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is Tyler Perry, the 47-year-old actor, producer, director, screenwriter, playwright, author, songwriter, and movie mogul, who is the most commercially successful black filmmaker in history and whose Atlanta-based Tyler Perry Studios now rivals any operation in Hollywood. Perry, of course, is most famous for creating, directing, and portraying on stage and screen the character Medea, an outspoken elderly black woman who tends to wind up in messy situations. Since 2005, eight Medea films have been released, loved by audiences, and hated on by critics. This week, the ninth, Boo! A Medea Halloween, hits theaters, so it seemed like a great time to reach out to Perry to see if he'd be open to discussing his fascinating life and unique career. Over the course of our conversation, Perry and I discuss how he was shaped by his childhood, during which he suffered terrible physical and sexual abuse, how years later, stumbling upon an Oprah episode, motivated him to begin writing, what inspired the Medea character and what goes into bringing her to life, who the Tyler Perry audience is and why they're so loyal to him, what he thinks about the journalists and fellow members of the black community who argue that Medea is essentially a modern-day minstrel character, And how this man, who just a few years ago was living out of his car, became expert enough at branding and business to amass a net worth estimated to be near $500 million, built a 330-acre studio, and employed thousands of people. We also get the treat of hearing what Medea herself thinks of the 2016 presidential candidates. And as you might imagine, it's quite hilarious. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Perry, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. It's my
1: pleasure, Scott. My pleasure.
0: So to begin with, we always just ask, where were you we born and raised? And what did your folks do for a living?
1: Born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, my uh, the man that raised me was a carpenter subcontractor. He framed houses. And my mother worked at a Jewish community center taking care of kids there.
0: I have read in the course of preparing for this that though you go by the name Tyler, that is not your actual first name that you were born with. Yeah. Why did you change that?
1: Well, Emmett Perry is the name that I was given at birth, but it is the name of the man who raised me, and I didn't want to carry his name. It, it represented a lot of pain, a lot of screaming and yelling every time his name was mentioned, so I didn't want to be
0: called by that name. Yeah. <laughs> and not to belabor this at all, but you've spoken about it in the past, and I think it shaped the films that you've made, so I just wonder if you can somewhat synopsize. I mean, it was not the happiest of childhoods.
1: Well, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. No, 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 no. It wasn't a happy childhood. There was a lot of turmoil and pain and heartache, a lot of abuse at the hands of my father from him to me and my mother. And it was a difficult time, but every bit of it has formed the person that I am today.
0: So I imagine that throughout your childhood, you were probably looking forward to getting away from the home and probably New Orleans in general. How did you end up around the age of 21 in Atlanta?
1: Well, all, all through childhood, I had a very vivid imagination. I could, I could go in my mind and be somewhere in another town, in another place, and a, a lot of times I would see myself in this big open field running in the grass. And at 21, I went to, it was spring break, and for black kids back then in the 90s, it was called Freaknik down in Atlanta. And, you know, white kids go to the beach, black kids were going to Atlanta for a spring break. <laughs> I don't know why. Atlanta was hot as hell around that time. But when I got there, I wasn't even in college. I was just going to hang out and party, but when I got there, I saw black people doing well for the first time in my life. I saw black doctors and lawyers and people with who had, you know, my complexion living in nice homes and taking their families to dinners and going on vacation with them. Things I had never heard of, things that were so foreign to me growing up. I had never gone to a restaurant, you know, up until that time. I had never spent any time with the family, we never sat around a dinner table. I had mm-hmm. never seen any of that, and I didn't think it was something that people of color did. Mm-hmm. But when I got to Atlanta, all those myths were
0: blown out of the window. So, so eventually, you then moved back there not long after. Right? No, moved that there? That, you,
1: that weekend, I, you I went, no, I went home. I packed my Hyundai and drove right back. <laughs> I drove right back that weekend.
0: And within a year, I, I guess you were, from what I've read, working at a at a law firm. You're bill collector, and mm-hmm. you see an Oprah episode. Yeah, yeah. No,
1: really- no. actually, I saw the Oprah episode in, in New Orleans. Yeah, I saw it in New Orleans where she said it was cathartic to write things down. So I started writing in New Orleans. And I started journaling there. And a friend of mine in New Orleans said to me, you know, I used different characters' names because I didn't want people to know that I was, I was talking about my own life when I was talking about adult survivors of child abuse. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, this is a really good play. Well, he was murdered selling crack cocaine in his grandmother's house. And I remember taking the, the play with me to Atlanta, knowing that that is what I wanted to do. I wanted to make that play happen.
0: And so that play was, I know I've been changed. Yes. And from what I've read, you really poured your heart into writing it and then your savings into yeah. mounting it. Yeah. And I wonder how you thought that would go and then how it actually went.
1: Well, I assumed that I could do it all. I thought that I could promote it and write it and direct it and go out and work the concession stands and then come back and put the lights up and do everything I needed to do. But (laughs) it doesn't quite work that way. And I learned very quickly that I did not have a gift for promoting. (laughs) So so I thought I would see 1,200 people over the course of a weekend and 30 showed up. Yeah. So car payment, rent payment, my H&R block tax return that wasn't quite done right was all invested in the play and uh, I lost
0: everything. And so those next few years were pretty tough. I've read about living in motels or even out of your car. What kept you going creatively, but just generally through those tough times?
1: What kept me going is my faith. My mother was a was a woman who instilled great faith in me. And no matter what was going on in our lives, she would tell me to pray, everything's going to be okay. So from a little boy, I remember praying, talking to God, just saying, listen, I, I God just helped me here in this situation. And, and it was it was my faith that knowing that, that everything was gonna be
0: okay. And your faith hadn't been shaken though by some of the crap that you had to deal with that you've talked about as a child?
1: Yeah, of course it would be shaken, but but I just kept seeing in my mind a better place. I could which would always give me hope. Like that running in that park that I talk about, running in that in those open fields, I would always see that. It would give me so much joy. And all of those moments, especially when I was beginning to doubt and things were beginning to crumble, because the greatest frustration I had honestly was I did not know how I was going to make it. I saw it in my mind. I believed it. But there wasn't one bit of tangible hope or one person that I could say this person is going to help me or that person is going to help me. And 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 that was the most frustrating part of it all, not knowing how I would get there.
0: And so after that initial loss of your savings and and lack of success with the original incarnation of, of that play, you just kept refining it over the next few years or was it starting all over? How did you end up in 1998 basically Mm -hmm. turning it into a success?
1: Well, in 1992, I did the show and it failed with the 30 people coming, but there was somebody who wanted to invest. So I was doing one show a year after that because that's all the investors could afford. But Mm -hmm. every time in the audience, this is how you know something is for you to, to, to do. Every time in the audience, there was someone who wanted to invest. So from 92 to 93 to 94, 95, 96, 97, one show a year, I have to quit my job and go try to do this one show and hoping it would be successful. But in 1998, what I think changed was within those years of of trying to get the show up uh, on tour, I had had some major conversations with the man that raised me and I forgave him. Little, little did I know that the show was a bit prophetic for me because... The writing was ahead of me. The show was about people who had forgiven their their abusers, and no sooner than I forgave him in about late '97, in 1998, the show took off, and that's the only thing that I can attribute it to, other than what I attribute it to is my understanding of the words that I was speaking. They became life to me, you know, and they became power in my own life to to have. I think it's very important that before you can go out and give the message to someone, you have to know it and receive it
0: yourself as well. That's amazing that you were able to do that. And the show becomes at this point a phenomenal success. I think you had by that point figured out more how to be a good promoter because it was throughout black churches and Mm -hmm. areas, right? And so following that success, what were those next few years after that like? You were now a prolifically creative guy, I think.
1: Right? Yeah, but they were scary. I still had a lot of residue from being very, very poor, so everything was about hoarding. Let me get as much as I can and put it away. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to build a house and pay for it. So if this goes bad, I can. Okay, I've got to make sure the car is paid for. It. So everything was about this isn't going to last. This right. isn't going to last. Right. Once I was able to, after the second year of success and the shows are selling out all over the place, I started to relax a little bit and go, mm. wait a minute, this is actually here to stay. Yeah. They're, they're loving it, and. Once I was able to do that, I was able to embrace uh, being successful and having
0: success. And one of those shows of many that came after 1998 was the one that introduced Medea. Can yeah. you talk about just when and how that character was born?
1: I had done Old Man Joe, my car- he was the first one in an orbit change, and people loved him. I said, Well, this time I want to do something different. And I saw Eddie Murphy do the Clumps, I think it was the night, oh, yeah. the night oh, professor yeah, yeah. when he's being one of the clumps. I said, I'm gonna try my hand at a grandmother character. <laughs> and there, Medea was born, and I, I modeled her after the funniest women that I know my mother and my aunt. And they were women who took no prisoners, who said what was on their mind, they weren't politically correct, they would just say it, kind of like Donald Trump. <laughs> and uh, um, I made that. That them my focus and the person that was supposed to be in the show had been advertising her all week that she was going to be there. I had spoken to her manager. She was on her way. She had a big hit record on the time, big R and B star, and she was supposed to be in the play when we hit Chicago. Well, she never showed up, and I was devastated. So there I am playing Medea. I was supposed to be on stage for five minutes, but when she left, I had when she didn't show up, I had to take her lines and Medea's lines.
0: So you were not originally going to be Medea.
1: I was going to be here for a very small time. Small I wasn't, she that. wasn't going to be as large as she became. <laughs> and um, at the end of the show, I walk out on the stage. I get a standing ovation from the audience, which blew my mind. And I'm apologizing for her not being there. And the audience says they're chanting, "We don't care. Yeah. We don't care." <laughs> that's right. And that's Medea was born.
0: Now, not all straight men are confident enough or comfortable enough in their own skin to uh, dress in drag. I guess mm. you would describe it as did doing so ever give you any pause or was it you were at home right away in that
1: i just you know i never looked at it that way i just i, I look at it I, the people say oh you're dressing in drag for me it's like the people at walmart who put the jackets on to go to work i mean that's <laughs> that's what it is it's like my uniform it's, right. okay this is what we're gonna do right yeah i'm a character actor so any character you give me i just you know i, I give my give my all to it i look at alex cross which was You know, when I was out doing rides with police officers and and talking to criminals and the darkness of it, trying to get into it, you just go
0: with it. Right. Yeah. So it was clear, though, right away that there was a response to Medea that that was larger than the response to some of these other characters?
1: Well, there had only been one before, and it was Joe. Only Joe. No, he had a very large response. But no, Medea, there was something something that was just happening with it, and I was like, wow.
0: That was, I guess, in probably the early 2000s. By 2003... You were shopping around, as I understand it, the concept of a film in Hollywood yeah. built around Medea. I think built around Diary of a Mad Black Woman. And studios were not too enthusiastic at that point. In fact, some I think were pretty rude.
1: Oh, yeah. One one guy in particular, yeah, at uh, at one of the big studios. I, w- I would go into these meetings because I had I started, I signed with William Morris at the time. Wow, it's been that long I've been with them. <laughs> they were taking me around to all these meetings and we had done the show and, you know, I'm thinking, I'm famous among black people man. I cannot walk down the street in the, <laughs> the south, right? I get here to LA and these guys are like, "Who the hell are you?" and "What do you what do you want?" and "What are you what what can we do for you?" Right, kind of thing. It right. just it was uh it was quite interesting. Right. Quite
0: interesting. So you really pretty much exhausted the the rounds here until Lionsgate, I guess, was more receptive, or how did that come about?
1: No, I think we I went to three or four people, and then I said, I'm done. I'm going to do this on DVD, because I had done all the films on DVD. I said, I'm going to do this movie on DVD and sell it on my website, like I've done everything else. And I was i was doing an OTT before there was OTT. So, <laughs> right. so I was like, to hell with it. I'm not right. dealing with these people. Right. And Lionsgate called, and when Mike Parson had called. I had such an attitude. I was like, listen, I've been out there. I've met with all those people. I'm not changing anything in the script. I'm doing it my way. I'm going to put up half the money. I need to own the copyright. And and at the end of the conversation, he says, okay. (laughs) I thought, well, now. Okay, here we go. What did he get that the others didn't get? Believe it or not, uh, D.L. Hughley was around. and, And he's like, have you ever heard of this guy, Tyler Perry? See, Mike was smart enough to go talk to somebody black to see. <laughs> and DL was like, the guy is huge in our community, huge. And he also had some other black people in, in the, at working there at the time, and he asked them about me, and they all were just going on and on about it. So he did his research the yeah, old-fashioned way. Yeah, well, yeah.
0: So bottom line, you and Lionsgate, I believe, split the budget, as you say. You had. Oh,
1: they didn't believe in it. Let's take you what they did. We split the budget 50-50, and then they took the, another 50 and split it with BET. <laughs> yeah, so they had no. They, they didn't, were, they were like, out. we're going to protect ourselves. Right, here. right. Yeah,
0: yeah. You, though, retain cr- complete creative control. And so the result was that this $5.5 million movie opens in February 2005, number one at the box office, $50.6 million domestically, and basically shocked everyone in Hollywood. And I guess I just wonder. Were you as surprised as everyone else, or did you kind of truly believe that was going to happen?
1: Oh, I knew that would happen. I wasn't surprised because I had been out on stage in front of the people, man. I knew they were coming. You know, I I was out like on a campaign trail week to week seeing, you know, 30,000 people a week saying, listen, we want you to go see this movie. And I would show the trailer and they would go crazy. So (laughs) I was expecting something wonderful to happen. And I think the tracking said it was going to be really, really soft. And it it was, it was Oscar weekend, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. And come Monday morning, when everybody looked at the paper, they were like, "What the hell happened this weekend? <laughs> yeah, who is this? Where did right, this come from?" Right. Yeah.
0: So, who is the Tyler Perry audience?
1: It's evolved a great deal over the years because what it, what I found in especially as of late is that now these millennials they can find you online and become an expert on you in two weeks. So I've watched my audience change, but I can I can definitely tell you who my base is. My base are hardworking people, mostly African American, largely women, who have all kinds of jobs, all kinds of, you know, they they are working at Walmart and McDonald's, they own hair salons or they're doctors and they're lawyers and they're judges. And I've seen some of everyone. And I think what makes it work is is it wax nostalgic to times of old. So no matter where you are in the on the social ladder or in the ladder of class, you still can relate to some of the characters. So that's that's a pretty good cover of a lot of my audience.
0: And what percentage of them would you estimate are very religious people? In the
1: beginning, I would have told you at least 95%. Mm-hmm. Now I think it's a good 50-50. Really? Yeah.
0: yeah, I really do. You, again, seem to be honing this. Uh, you, you said you started out as a bad promoter, marketer, but starting with even that first film, you were... Savvy enough to insist, I guess, that it have Tyler Perry's ahead of the title, and that's been the case ever since. Where did that start? Where did that come from? That that was important.
1: You know, I I was told I was arrogant. I was what? Who do I think I was? Because (laughs) I remember showing up in one theater and my name wasn't on the marquee, and I had a fit and made them go out there and put it up before the show started. (laughs) And people were thinking this guy's got a crazy ego, but for me, I was definitely building a brand. The reason I wanted to put my name on it is because there were a lot of shows of, for the African-American audience at that time, uh, like the live stage shows. And in theater, the name was always of Garvidal, so and so yeah. and so. And so in theater, it was always above the title. But what I also realized is that if I, if I put my name here, they'll know that when they see Tyler Perry, they're going to get something different from the others. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't have called it building a brand at the time. I right. didn't know that. But now I know that's what I was doing all along.
0: Yeah. To come back to Medea specifically for a second, can you explain for, let's pretend there's somebody listening who's never seen one of your films yet, yeah. who is Mabel Simmons, and how did she wind up with this name Medea, and what is the appeal of this person?
1: So for someone who's never seen it, Mabel Simmons is a loud, obnoxious, <laughs> tough-talking, gun-toting, weed-smoking <laughs> grandmother who is unapologetic, who is not politically correct, who is who was born in the late 40s and says what's on her mind and does not care. <laughs> and I think that's what the appeal is, because no matter who you are, if you're Jewish, if you're Italian, if you're a Latino, if if you have a grandmother or grandfather somewhere in your lineage, you know this <laughs> character. And I think that's the appeal, because she's, she was always wise. This grandmother was always wise. And she's not around anymore. Grandmothers are much younger. And they look much younger because of hair dye. But <laughs> she had so much wisdom. She was so smart. She was so full of love, but she's also a fixer. And I think that's why people wax nostalgic to it. I think that's why she's been so popular.
0: What is the process of turning you into Medea entail? How long is that? What do you have to go through?
1: It's gotten a lot better. It used to be like hours to get into the makeup and hair, but with digital touch-ups on screen now, I can do it in about an hour. Really? Yeah, we get in and zip the costume up and go right out there and do the character. But it's a chore. It's a chore. The most difficult part, I would think, about the character is directing in in the costume standing there in costume not changing telling people what to do where to put the light where to move the camera what lens to use (laughs) yeah in my normal voice in the wig and everything but but my team has gotten so used to it it's been so many years that we've been doing it so it's all it's comfortable
0: another thing that was kind of interesting to to learn was that you guys with your films unlike most films but like a lot of sitcoms do the four camera setup
1: Three, three for me on the phone. three. Yeah, okay, yeah.
0: and that's because I'm guessing you do a lot of improv and you want to just not have to try to recapture the magic. Y-
1: yeah, when you're doing when you're doing comedy, that you have to, especially with me, and it's rolling. Yeah. You want you want it to just roll. You don't want to be able to cut. You don't want to have to set up again because you lose the momentum. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah.
0: So with that first Medea film and with the others that have followed, she goes to jail, survives a family reunion, celebrates mm-hmm. Christmas, now survives Halloween. What are the overall aims? I'm, I'm sure entertaining is yeah. high on the list, but what else are you hoping to communicate in each of these films?
1: Well, if you look at all of them, there's a, there's this one theme of, of faith, mm-hmm. family, forgiveness, in all of them. It always finds its way in. I don't want to just do movies to just do movies. I'd like to leave see people with something that would lift them in some way or another, that makes them laugh, that encourages them in some way or another. But but for the most part, it's about those three things, faith, family, forgiveness. So they're they're woven into all of them.
0: And are these cathartic in the same way that writing in that initial post-Oprah episode phase was because, I mean, even here in Boo, a movie about Halloween, there are discussions about parental abuse of children and all kinds of things that are actually part of your experience. So is that as much about getting stuff off your chest as it is about helping other people?
1: Well, I don't know if it's about getting things off my chest anymore as much as it is about what I've learned. What I've learned and how I can use it to speak and and lift and encourage as well, even in even in my television shows, it's a, those a lot of those moments about what I've learned and how how can I use this this I hate to say platform because it's becomes such a common word, but how can I use this this platform to to not just entertain you but also leave you with some thought that makes you go Hmm, am I like that mm-hmm. or could I be better? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: the origin story of Boo is pretty hilarious. I yeah. wonder if you can Within share itself, that. Right? Yeah. <laughs>
1: Chris Rock does this movie, Top 5, right. and in the movie he has a fake. First of all, his character does movies in the movie. Right. To, try to follow me here. <laughs> and his character does a movie about a bear. I can't think of the name of the movie. So he decides, he and Rosario Dawson's they decide to go to the movie, Rosario's character, go to the movie theater to see who's at his movie. Well, when he walks in, he looks to the left, and he sees a long line trying to get into a movie theater. And he asks the people, what, what is this movie for? And they say the title of it is Boo, a Medea Halloween.
0: <laughs> Big laugh line, right? Everybody's laughing. Right,
1: right. Really? Madea? Uh, That's many people going to see it? Boo. <laughs> so, of course, he had to call to get permission to use the character and everything. I was like, you know, Chris, I'm a huge fan, so I I, I was totally happy to oblige. So now it's time to turn the favorite. So, <laughs> so Lionsgate sees it, and they go, Uh, Tyler, we need to talk. You know, okay, what? Did you see Top Five? Yeah, it's great, man. I love the movie. No, did you see Boo and Madea Halloween? Oh, yeah, I'm like, yeah, that's ridiculous. That's so ridiculous. Boo of Madea. Madea will never do Halloween. They're like, well, have you thought about it? I'm like, are you really asking me to do a movie called Boo, a Medea Halloween? And it took me two years to sit. And never nothing takes me two years, man. No. I, nothing takes me two. I could send a kid off to college in, in less time. But <laughs> but I was
0: really thinking about it and came up with a concept that works for me. One thing I want to jump back to, because you've now been playing Medea for something like 15 years? Almost 18. I 18 mean, years. Yeah. I wonder how long into the future you can see yourself playing this character. I understand that when your mother, who inspired the character yeah. in some ways, when she passed away in 2009. Don't she, stop. Don't stop. She don't said, stop right? playing Madea, yeah. Why was
1: it so important to her? She loved her. Yeah, she loved her. And she loved the laughter. And she said, baby, whatever you do, don't stop playing Medea." I was like, I sure hope that's not your dying wish. <laughs> But, but
0: but but she did cuz would you still be playing her if she hadn't said that
1: you know I, I tell you it's what it does for the people and and i i assure you man i have been able to use this character to bring messages to people who no one has been able to get a message to she can talk about anything she can make them laugh and it's so disarming it's so it's like anesthesia to get to the root of everything If I could find a way to talk about police brutality and all of these people being shot by police officers through this character, and I've been thinking about it, Mm -hmm. I think it would speak volumes to to what so many people can't say, you know? So she's been an effective tool, but I am determined to not be her age playing her.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm determined. Would you ever empower, authorize somebody else to play her? Are you kidding me? That would be like saying, here, take my arms. Right, right. Yeah. No, no, no. I need my arms. Right.
1: That's like a kidney transplant. Right. No, man. No, I'm going to keep both of mine. Yeah. yeah. You
0: mentioned how it's this character has been able to reach almost every group out there, every type of person out there. If there's one type of person that it has not reached for whatever reason, it might be some critics. Yeah. And I just wonder, because I've read you talk about this in very humorous ways before, mm-hmm. just what is the divide there? Why, are they, why do they give you such a hard time?
1: I'm sure there are lots of reasons. Listen, let's just be fair to them, okay? Yeah. So, so it's, it's not... If you come to a Medea movie looking for Schindler's List, <laughs> I, think, I think you're going to be a little disappointed, right. right? But if you come looking for what it is, and I think that if critics would, would accept it for what it is and also sit in an audience with who it's directed to... I think there would be a different opinion. But in all fairness, you know, I look back on some of it. I can't even watch it. It's it's, it's rough for me. Really? Man. Yeah, oh, my God. My first time directing Medea's Family Reunion, I can't even look at it. <laughs> I'm like, I made so many mistakes in what I didn't know. So what I've tried to do with critics is look for truth. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's truth, I'll take it. I'll, I'll absorb it. I'll try and find it. And that's what's been important for me. But I don't I don't know if they're ever going to get it. But, yeah. but it's, okay.
0: it's okay. And then the other thing was that within the black community overwhelming i mean i don't know if there's a more popular person than than you or slash medea Mm. but does it grate on you when periodically there's somebody like spike lee or a few others who you'll get people that are giving you a hard time they say this evokes you know your mammy character or an amos and andy or in spike lee's case he was going on about quote coonery buffoonery yeah does this bother you why are they wrong
1: Here's why they're wrong, because back in the the day of, of Amos and Andy and Stephen Fetchett and, and those characters, they never had any power. They never owned the character, they never had any authority. What I've been on the, on this whole journey of my life has been to to take this character, to take these stories that my people love and grow my business into a force. You know, that's been my purpose. But if you look at Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston, uh, he, Langston Hughes said that Zora Neale Hurston was a new version of the Darkie because she spoke in the Southern dialect, you know. And this this kind of thing goes on and on in our community, and it has for a very long time. If you are black and you are not representing a certain polished section, educated section of the culture, then you're you're put into the step and fetchit category, you know. But if you're Someone like me coming from where I come from, I tell stories about, you know, the people I grew up with, my uncle with his dashy knees, my loud, obnoxious <laughs> neighbor, Dorothy Taylor, who would who would stab her husband every Friday night and then call the police. You know, I'm telling you, my my aunt who would who would shoot at her husband and call 911 and say, you better come get him. I'm getting ready to kill this. Son. I mean, those people are real. Right. And what I found with a lot of those critics when they say those kind of things is what they're telling me is that those people's stories do not deserve to be told, which is unfair, Mm -hmm. which is wrong, flat out wrong. I think we all have the right to tell our stories. And I speak from my experiences and my journey and all these people are part of it. And you can say what you want about them, but they're real human beings. And as long as we're all breathing on this earth, we all have a right to tell our own stories.
0: Yes. Sure. Yeah. And one thing that you don't get enough credit for, I think, is how many opportunities Mm -hmm. you've created for other people Mm -hmm. in the community even out of the community i mean i believe idris elba did his first movie with you taraji
1: her first leading role with you she's been saying some great things about me man it's just really awesome yeah Yeah. i mean
0: and that's not even mentioning how many people work for you in atlanta
1: yeah right now it's about 400 but since we opened in January, over a thousand people have come through the gates. That's with contractors, construction workers, and the union workers, and on the shows and everything. It's it's over a thousand people
0: have come through the gates. Can you tell people what what goes on there? Because basically, you are operating the equivalent of a Hollywood studio in Atlanta, yeah. which I don't know if if there's ever been anything like this outside of Hollywood proper where where this is kind of thing goes on.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I don't take the time to sit in that thought of it because it would probably overwhelm me. But what I wanted to do is just have a full service shop for myself, which I've had for like seven or eight years. Mm-hmm. And now we've just moved into a place where after mastering how to serve myself in the business, we've moved into the Fort McPherson Army Base that I just purchased. And we're going to turn it into a full, we've already broken ground, actually, turning it into a full service studio for anyone who wants to come and shoot anyone who wants to experience what it's like to film in Atlanta which is which is pretty darn great. terrific. Yeah. This is over yeah. like
0: 330 acres, right? It yeah. is a big place.
1: 330 acres. It is a big place and when I first stepped onto it I thought wait a minute this is overwhelming is this too much? <laughs>
0: It's not like you were at a small place before, though, right? You well, were six, where It was 60 acres, yeah. But, but, and this was the former Delta Airlines campus. Yeah, the former so Delta, you, Delta you Airlines campus. So you don't do it small. No. <laughs>
1: but even there, when I remember the first day I went there and saw it, I thought, this is too big. I'll never outgrow it. Mm-hmm. So I carried that thought when I saw Fort McPherson for the first time. I didn't think it was too big. I'd never outgrow it. I said, okay, if I'm supposed to do this, then let's go.
0: That's great. And yeah. so it'll be fully operational in 2017? Late? No, 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 late 2017. This,
1: this is the 16th, see what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm day, day. <laughs> yeah, late 17.
0: Sure. What inspired you to create the art house banner I guess of of Tyler Perry Studios 34th Street Productions, which I think the first thing that came out of that was for Colored Girls, which you directed. What was the impetus for that?
1: Well, the first thing was Precious, actually. They found, uh, oh. they found Precious and brought Precious to yeah. me at the, at the film festival. I called Oprah and said, let's get on board with this. But 34th Street Films was my serious brand. It was my brand of... Because I had painted myself into a great little corner with the Tyler Perry brand. People were like, this is all we're going to expect of this brand. Mm -hmm. So I wanted a new brand that I could go out and do more festival-type films, Mm -hmm. more films that garnered more critical acclaim, Mm -hmm. and I was very interested in that at the time.
0: And the other kind of offshoot that you've, you've been heavily involved with, I think starting in 2011, I believe, was this partnership with the own network, Oprah's yeah. network, which it's got to be kind of surreal when you think about the fact that this is the woman who inspired you to do this in the first place, right? Beyond, yeah, beyond. And, and now you're producing the most successful content on her network.
1: And that, not that weird? <laughs> yeah, it's like a, she talks about a full circle moment. That's absolutely one. And what's so crazy is that all those years ago when I saw it, I always felt connected to her some kind of way. Mm-hmm. So... Not only that, do you know, for us to be have, have become great friends over this time, period of time, it's really awesome.
0: What's at the root of that? I know she also had a, a pretty tumultuous childhood and has the strength of spirit or whatever yeah. it is to have come through like you have. Why do you think you guys connect so much? Our
1: similarities, our yeah. similarities are uncanny. it takes Gail to talk about them. It's just, and and a lot of times when we notice things ourselves, how yeah. we how we see things, how we you know appreciate things, how we can give two different people the same advice. It was somebody recently asked me in the paper, and I didn't even talk to her about this. They asked, what was the most humbling thing that I do? And I said, clean up dog poop. <laughs> and she was on the same list. They asked her what yeah. she did, and she cleaned up dog poop. <laughs> you know, so we have a lot of things in common, and right. I think that is, has helped solidify a wonderful friendship. Yeah. yeah. And then
0: she's the, one of the godmothers of your yes. new um, new quite new baby, right? Quite new, yeah. yeah. Well, two years old. Two yeah, years he's, he seems like a little man. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and in fact probably not coincidentally, over the last two years, you've taken a bit of a break from directing until Boo. You have, however, appeared in a few non media related projects. Yeah. And you mentioned Alex Cross, also very well received in David Fincher's has Gone Girl. Yeah. And so I just wonder, was that sort of to satisfy your own curiosity about what it's like working for other filmmakers, see how they work?
1: Well, the, the Star Trek, working with J.J. Abrams was oh, the first yeah. time I was like, okay, let me see what how everybody else works. Yeah. Uh, but with Fincher, I, first of all, when you get an opportunity to work with somebody that brilliant, you have to say yes. I mean, what do you want me to do, play a rooster in the corner? <laughs> I can do that for you, David. Yes, that's what it was about, seeing what other people were doing, but also about learning. Mm-hmm. I felt like I went to college on his set just... And as I watched Gone Girl, I mean, it became a study for me as I watched it over and over again and, and and just the style and the lighting and just, and and I wanted to take that into another film. So that's why I hadn't made a film in a while, aside from my son, was my focus, you know, in these first two years. But the next drama that I do, I think you'll see a lot of my appreciation for what I learned on that film. From Fitcher. Yeah,
0: yeah. Can you compare and contrast your level of comfort and your level of enjoyment when you're playing Medea versus when you're playing somebody else for somebody else.
1: Well, for a long time I couldn't do, I, I did, I did a movie, Good Deeds that I wrote and, and directed and started to see if I could do it without a costume. I didn't know if I could. Mm-hmm. So that was allowing me to have a level of comfort to be able to do Alex Cross or Gone Girl. But I love being on other people's set because not, not you know, everybody else is in the trailer. I'm watching, I'm learning. I've got, what is that for? What are they doing that? Mm-hmm. And what's that lens? And why are you, And also because I have gotten to a point where I just want to explore, do some different things, and just be the best that I can at it. Mm -hmm. What sorts of movies do you like to go and see? I love sci-fi. I'm a big sci-fi fan. Yeah, one of my favorite movies is World War Z. Yeah. Before that, it was Aliens. (laughs) Yeah. And they're working on a sequel. I'm sitting there just like this, like, where is it? Where is it, Brad? Where is it? Yeah. Yeah.
0: One of the things that's been discussed a lot in the last couple of years, both of which the last two years have produced sets of acting Oscar nominees that did not have any people of color among the 20 acting nominees. One of the things that's come up is why is this happening? Is it because the industry is not making diverse movies or is it because the Academy is not diverse enough to accept those movies? I guess I'd love to know what your theory generally is, but also what's your interpretation of this argument, quote, black films don't travel, which It just means that overseas people are not mm. showing up as much for for movies built around black characters, black actors. What do you make of all of that?
1: Well, there are two separate questions there. One about uh, Hollywood, Oscar, so white and yeah. the diversity. I, I never could really get into those arguments because I came in from the outside. I couldn't get into the. You know, let me stand here and, and pick it with you. It just I came in doing my own thing and because of that, I think it was the DGA reported that one fourth of all diversity or something was because of me and cable yeah, television. Yeah, yeah. I was I was too focused in on making a change to owning a studio, to having the power, to having the authority to hire people. That's where the change comes in. I, I I'm not gonna sit around a table. Is uh, saying what do we do going back and forth? I'm working. That's mm-hmm. is what I'm doing. So
0: and creating chances for other people. Yeah,
1: that's what that's what I knew that I was supposed to be doing. So I couldn't get into that argument. And 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 personally, I just felt like let me just do what I do. On the other side of it, the other side of your question, movies traveling. You know, I it was Will Smith who I I told him I said, listen, they're telling me that our our movies don't travel around around the world. He said, get on a plane and come over here to Europe with me. And I went to. Four territories with him, and the reaction was amazing. But you know, granted, he's the biggest star in the world. But what he was explaining to me is that most of these territories are smaller than Texas. You've got to come, you've got to work them, you've got to get introduced to them. You mm-hmm. gotta. You can't just sit aside and say it doesn't work. You have to invest, mm-hmm. and it, and and he started investing very early on in music, and it took years to build it, but it has to be built. So I think that someone. In this industry is going to have to say okay i want to start building this abroad i want to start building this type of entertainment abroad and make the investment and then but why change. does
0: that have to happen when that doesn't have to happen for you know david fincher makes a movie they doesn't yeah. have to do that i, yeah. I guess because the thing that's just so weird to me is your movies couldn't be more successful than they are here yeah and yet overseas it, they don't make a lot of money.
1: Well, there's no there's no effort to promote or sell them there really. There's yeah. the, you know I have a friend of mine named Brendan O'Carroll who plays Mrs. Brown, which blew my mind when I found he's in Europe, he sells out arenas, he does he's on the BBC, he did a movie that did really really well. It blew my mind the similarities in our lives. I think where he's older than I am, but mm-hmm. our day, birthdays are a couple of days apart. Mm-hmm. You know who I'm talking about? I think so. Oh my gosh, he's hysterical yeah. and he plays he plays a woman. Yeah. And he's huge there, and when I was having this very same conversation with me, he's like, "Are you trying to tell me that Medea wouldn't work in Europe?" No, let me show you something. So it's about educating and some one person breaking through. Are you interested in being that person? Yes, but my focus has been so on building the studio and where I am sure. now. I haven't had the energy right. or the or the time to really focus on it, but absolutely I could be yeah
0: sure. What would Medea have to say about the Donald Trump-Hillary Clinton election? Well,
1: honey, I can tell you on a few occasions. <laughs> I I just think that... Are you okay? Are you okay? That's good. I just think that they need to do something, because this is just damn stupid. You got a man trying to run, Fred didn't want to build a wall, but hell, he need to build a wall around Trump Tower so I can lock his ass up in it. <laughs> And history, Lord, I love history, but it, this is what I'm gonna say about that. This is all I'm gonna say. That I'm gonna be done with. <laughs> listen, listen, Everybody say they want Donald Trump because he ain't no politician. Well, let me ask you something. If you about to have surgery and you need your brains worked on, <laughs> would you go hire somebody just because they ain't a doctor? Hell, you need a politician in the White House to be a politician. I heard that joke somewhere. That I don't, I don't own that joke, no, but I heard, it's somewhere. Great. I heard it somewhere. You should keep it. <laughs> yeah, that was
0: pretty really funny. Ah, uh, thank you for that. That's awesome. So just, I guess, as a final question here. Look, you're crying, man.
1: Wipe your eyes. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Give me a second here. Oh, man.
0: So again, whether it's with the Oprah element where things have come kind of full circle or the fact that you're now one of the most commercially successful filmmakers, forget black filmmakers, and you've done really so much as we've referred to with Atlanta and and elsewhere to help other people get a leg up in this business, it's got to... Be pretty kind of pinch me if you stop and think about that. And I just wonder, you're still a young man. What's left on the bucket list? What What's
1: there to do? Now, now it's about growing the studio into what it's supposed to be. Because I didn't ask for it. You know, I was going to build something on the other side of town. It's a much smaller property. This is in the city of Atlanta. The level of responsibility that I have there, the level of responsibility that I have to all the employees and to all these other young filmmakers and people who want to be in the business. And it's it's a heavy burden, but I've got to honor it respect it, do my absolute best with it, and then hopefully make it strong enough that it lives so long that I can pass it on to my son if he wants to do that or or any other young person who comes along and thinks that they want to take this to the next level.
0: That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. My pleasure.